Okay, well, let's come to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7. We've had two or three sermons already on what I've called the characteristics of love. This love that comes from God, a love that is spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So this is a special kind of love. And we've been looking at its characteristics. What is it actually like? What does it actually do? And what does it not do? And last time I spoke on this subject, we saw that there were, in fact, six things described which love does not go. Six negative statements concerning what love does not do. And we compared that with what human nature would do and saw that it was completely opposite. There are things that love refrains from doing. And those six things were things we looked at last time. And they're still on the podcast, by the way. All these sermons are on the podcast. And you can go back as far as you like in a series of sermons to discover what went before or what you might have missed. Now, in verse 7, we have not negative statements, but positive statements. It made those negative statements about love, what it doesn't do. And here he turns to fulsome, positive statements about love. Let me just read it to you again. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, before we go any further, let me point out that all things here cannot possibly mean everything. All things cannot mean everything. Now, I know grammatically those two expressions are synonyms, mean the same thing. But theologically, they cannot possibly be the same. And the reason for that, of course, is the second statement there, that love believes all things. And if all things meant everything, then it means we would have to believe every lie that is told us. We'd have to believe every false doctrine that is taught to us. We would have to believe any fake news that we hear or read about. We'd have to believe all kinds of things which the Bible says we should not believe. And throughout the New Testament, throughout the whole Bible in fact, you have warnings not to believe false prophets, not to believe false teaching, not to believe false Christs even. There are so many things that we are not to believe. John, in his first epistle, says, test the spirits. Don't believe all that is said to you in the name of God. Test the spirits to see if they are true. So, I repeat, everything cannot mean the same as all things. All things must 
somehow define a category of things that we can believe. And what we shall find as we work through these four statements about love is that the phrase all things has a different meaning in each of the four statements. So having said that and got that clear in our minds, we'll begin with the first of those statements. Love bears all things. Now, if you are thinking, and I hope you are thinking already because you have to think to benefit from a sermon, if you are thinking, you will say, well, just a minute, the first of these statements, love bears all things, and the last of these statements, love endures all things, are really exactly the same. Because to bear something is to endure it, and to endure it is to bear it. Now, clearly, if Paul has only three things to say, he's not going to write down four statements. So there must be a difference in the Apostle's mind between bearing all things and enduring all things. And in fact, there is. Because we need to go back to the original language, the Greek, New Testament Greek, in which the New Testament was written, and we find there are two different words in Greek. The word for bear in chapter 7 is different from the word to endure. And that doesn't help us altogether because just as in English we use those two words to mean the same thing, so in the Greek it is possible to use them interchangeably. In the Greek words, both of those Greek words can mean to endure and both of them can mean bear. So that doesn't help us a great deal until we look even a little deeper to the meaning of the Greek word. The word translated bear is a word that is only used four times in the New Testament. And it's only translated bear once in the New Testament. Its basic meaning is really to lift up or to bear up. It's used of a roof or a covering, something that covers and hides and conceals something underneath or protects something underneath. But as is true of many Greek words in New Testament Greek, because the vocabulary is a small one compared with English, one Greek word often serves a number of different meanings and you have to judge from the context in which it is used what exactly the meaning is. I think this word means to lift up. This word should mean or be understood as bearing up or lifting up. It's one of the possible meanings of the word. And the picture I have in my mind is the picture of a man standing and at his feet there is a heavy sack, sack full of grain perhaps. And he bends down and he lifts it up and puts it on his own shoulder. And I think what Paul is teaching here is spelled out 
in a very clear way in another of his letters. In Galatians, letter to the Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 2, he writes, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now that's explicit, that's nothing ambiguous about that. Bear one another's burdens. He's talking to Christians and he's saying you've got to carry or bear the burdens of your fellow Christians because in doing so you will fulfill the law of Christ. Well then what does he mean by the law of Christ? Well there's a large definition and there's a small definition. The large definition the Lord Jesus Christ gave when he was questioned by a lawyer while he was here on earth he was questioned and the lawyer said what is the first and great commandment and Jesus answers the first and great commandment is this you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul and mind and then he added and the second great commandment is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself now in fact both of those are quotations from the old testament they're from the book of moses from deuteronomy and leviticus so they were not originated by christ himself but nevertheless they can be described as the law of Christ because he goes on to say on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets that is all the Old Testament writings are in some way derivative or dependent upon these two commands love God love your neighbor I actually prefer a more narrow understanding of the words the law of Christ because whilst the Lord Jesus borrowed the two great commandments from the Old Testament he didn't originate them in the New Testament he does originate what he calls a new commandment I give you he says a new commandment John chapter 13 and verse 34 I give you a new commandment and the new commandment is this that you love one another as I have loved you by this shall all men know that you are my disciples in that you love one another and so the law of Christ either way is a law about loving loving God loving your neighbor loving your fellow believer and so it fits perfectly my picture of what is going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 there I'm picturing that bearing as meaning carrying the burdens of someone else lifting up the burdens on someone else sharing if you like as must be the case in many situations sharing the burdens that other Christians bear and, and that is a responsibility that we have we are to share the burdens of other people and that must be a proactive activity mustn't it because we won't share 
the burdens of others unless we are conscious that they are burdened. Now, all things in this case, I would say, must mean all kinds of things. Regardless of the nature of the burden that our fellow believer carries, we are to be willing and ready to share that burden, to help them carry it. It's possible that the burden is a spiritual burden. And this would apply to somebody who is not a Christian. A spiritual burden is, of course, the burden of sin, the burden of unforgiven sin. We may outwardly appear to be very nice people. Most people are. But nevertheless, we are all sinners in the sight of God. And of course, the greatest sin is ignoring the existence of God and and turning our backs upon him, living as if he did not exist. But even those who do believe in God are often burdened with their sin. They have consciences that convict them of their sin. They know they've done wrong. They know they've spoken wrong. They know they've had wrong thoughts and they feel guilty. They carry a burden of unforgiven sin. And it may well be that as believers, we should help people who are in that situation. And of course, we help them most of all by pointing them to the forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ through simply believing in him, believing that he died for your sins, that you might be forgiven. You see, God cannot punish sins twice. And he punished our sins in Christ's own body on the cross. Christ was made sin, says 2 Corinthians. He was made sin for us, the one who knew no sin. He was without sin, the only human being that would ever be without sin because he was not only a human being, but he was the incarnate God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us as he died upon the cross, that he should bear our sins so we cannot be punished for the sins for which he already died, because that would be punishing the same sins twice. And that is why we can be declared free of sin, righteous in the sight of God. We can cease to be enemies of God or those who ignore God, and we can become his children. That's a tremendous truth. So if somebody is bearing that burden of unforgiven sin and ignorance of God, we can help them by simply telling them what the gospel is. But then also, because we are to be willing to bear any kind of burden, then we shall seek to share and bear the burden of those who are suffering some sickness or illness or bereavement or disappointment, suffering family problems, suffering financial problems perhaps. We, we must be ready and willing to pick up the burden, as it were, put it on our shoulders so that the one for whom we are caring, the one to whom we are showing this divine quality of love, does not have such a heavy burden to bear it. So then, we are to bear one another's burdens, which means, first of all, we must be on the lookout 
what the burdens other people bear. People aren't always going to tell us what their burdens are. They're very reluctant to share their burdens with others. And we're not to be nosy, we're not to be invasive of those people, but we are to be perceptive as we look at our fellow believers and we shall see and recognize that there are burdens that we can help them carry. We shall fulfill the law of Christ and that law of Christ is the law of love. A new commandment I give to you, he said, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, I need to add two caveats to that statement or to that teaching. First of all, it's obvious, I think, that a single Christian cannot bear or help bear the burdens of every other Christian. Not even in a small church, not even in a small community can we handle all the burdens of other people. There are particularly pastors who fall into this trap of trying to bear the burdens of their whole congregation perhaps. In a large church maybe, a church with 100 people, there are pastors who try to bear the burdens of everybody and they can't do it. It's too much. They burn out. You'd be surprised at how many Christian pastors suffer from burnout and have to give up their ministry. I know of several. And why have they done it? Because they have not been wise and understanding in what it means to bear the burdens of other people. You see, the Bible itself gives us an example. Uh, the Apostle Paul was collecting money from the, the relatively wealthy churches in Greece, uh, Achaia and Macedonia, and he says to the Corinthians, who had promised to contribute to this fund of relief for the poor churches in Judea, and the churches in Macedonia had given very, very liberally to this fund, and the church at Corinth, the people that he's writing to in this letter, the people in Corinth had promised to contribute to the fund, but they hadn't done it, and he wants them to keep their promise. And in the second letter to the Corinthians, he says this, I do not intend that others should be eased and you burdened, but I'm seeking an equality. Now you see what he's saying? He says, I'm not asking you to do something that will make you poor and others rich. I'm just seeking a balancing up. You are wealthy, relatively wealthy, and the Judean churches are relatively poor, and so you should give to help support them, but not to the degree that you starve yourselves or deprive your own families or become poor. No, don't, don't do that, because you have responsibilities to your family and to yourself indeed. So you see what Paul is saying. He's saying, be sensible in picking up the burdens of other people. Do what you can, but God is not asking you to do more than you can. Don't damage your own spiritual health by overdoing the bearing of other people's burdens. If you're a pastor or a leader in a church, you need to be particularly careful of this. 
Now the second caveat is that we are not meant to do this alone. When Paul writes in Galatians 6 verse 2, bear one another's burdens, if you were using the old King James Version, you would read, bear ye, bear ye other people's burdens. And that demonstrates, doesn't it, that he's talking not to one person, not to each Christian individually, but he's talking to a company of people, talking in the plural. And the responsibility of bearing the burden of a Christian, say in a given church congregation, is the responsibility of the entire church, not just of the pastor, not just of one or two particularly caring individuals, but the whole church has that responsibility. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that there is a unity of the church. He calls it a body, like a human body. And he says, if one member of a body suffers, all suffer. If you hurt your big toe, the whole body knows it. If you break a, a leg, the whole body suffers as a consequence. You, you can't isolate the responsibility for bearing one another's burdens to one person. It's a corporate responsibility to which the whole Christian community should and must respond. Well then, I think perhaps that's enough to say about the first of these statements. Bear one another's burdens. Love bears all things. That's a voluntary action that every Christian should take upon him or herself. A voluntary action, a willingness to help relieve the burdens of other believers. That's what love is like. That's what love does. That's what we should do. But now, let's see how we're getting on for time, but not very well. I want to deal with the second of these statements in chapter 13 and verse 7, which reads, believes all things. Love believes all things. Now, I've already said that that cannot mean everything because it would mean believing lies, believing false teaching, believing false prophets, believing fake news. It would mean believing things we should not believe and which the Bible tells us we ought not to believe. So what does it mean when he writes that love believes all things. Well, let's have a, a look at the world around us. We live in a day when falsehood is absolutely everywhere. Uh, the number of claims, the number of frauds being perpetrated has now risen to such a level that fraud is the major crime in the United Kingdom at this time. But it's hidden because people don't like to admit that they've been defrauded. They're ashamed of it. And even if you do report a fraudulent loss, somebody's raided your bank balance or borrowed your credit card, borrowed it uh, electronically, not, not physically, and started spending your money, it's very difficult indeed for the crime to be traced. Very often the 
criminal lives overseas and has hacked your account or done something of that sort. But, uh, you know, we can't even believe such standard news sources as the BBC. Everything has a spin. You can't believe politicians because what they say is, is usually spun, to use the popular word, twisted to favour their own cause. You don't know what to believe. You read these news reports that come in daily, you listen to the BBC and, and other broadcasters, you're not sure that you can believe what you're being told. And there are even situations where people are saying things quite sincerely, believing them to be true, when they're not true. I checked up the, the medical statistics yesterday and I, I looked up the number or the proportion of diagnoses by medical professionals that are wrong. And it turns out that something like 5% of all diagnoses are just plain wrong. Doctors got it wrong. I have an experience myself of that. Um, so many years ago now, I had a rash. I went to the doctor and I said, look, I've got a rash. What, what's it due to? What's happening? And he prescribed a particular skin cream. I used this. I obeyed the instructions. The rash only got worse. I went back to the doctor. So he put the strength up. And then the rash got very much worse. I, I, I just stopped using all medications and the rash disappeared. He was prescribing something that was actually making the rash worse. And he did so quite sincerely. But an even more serious case is this. I knew a pastor, again, we're talking about some decades ago now, who was diagnosed with a brain tumour. Now, this was before the days of scanners. So they had to deduce this diagnosis from um, external symptoms. But they finally finished up by saying, you, you've got a brain tumour and we shall have to operate now, this particular pastor happened to have a friend in the United States who was a surgeon who said he would do the operation free of charge. So off went the pastor to America to this surgeon for his operation. Came back a week later. He didn't have a brain tumour at all. I don't know how the Americans arrived at the correct diagnosis. He had tinnitus in his hearing and they had in this country they had attributed that to a brain tumour and I say 5% of initial diagnoses are wrong that's a worldwide figure incidentally but in some diseases which are difficult to diagnose something like type 2 diabetes and uh, heart attack the failure rate of diagnosis can be as high as 50%. Now, the doctors are quite sincere. They're doing their best, but they're not infallible. And that is the problem. When we come to the statement that love believes all things, all things must be restricted to a category of things that are 100% reliable. Otherwise, we're never sure if we can believe them or not. And where are we to find 
that category? What is there to define the category of 100% believable things? Well, we have a name for it, don't we? Truth. Truth. We can believe the truth, almost by definition. Uh, but that, perhaps, is not simple. Pontius Pilate said, when he was examining Jesus before his trial, Pontius Pilate asked him the question, what is truth? Now, that can be interpreted as a genuine inquiry, or more likely, it was a cynical statement saying, nobody knows what is the truth. But either way, he asked the question. And the Bible has an answer. When he was praying to God the Father, in John chapter 17, he was praying for his disciples. The Lord Jesus Christ says this, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, sanctify in, in that context at least means to set apart. You sanctify something, you take it out of the general run of things and you set it on one side, usually for the glory of God. You separate. And what is going to separate believers in Christ from the generality of people is this, that they love one another. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, there we are. Jesus says, that we can be, we can be separated, we can be recognized as different from other people. Why? Because we love one another. So then here we have a definition of truth. Truth is the word of God. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And where do we find the Word of God? We find it in the Bible. And in fact, we don't just find it in the Bible. There are people who teach that, yes, truth is to be found in the Bible. But the Bible itself goes much further than that. And the Apostle Paul again, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And in the Greek, that phrase breathed out by God is in fact a single word. All scripture is God breathed. And that means not just that you can find truth in the Bible, but that the Bible itself is truth. Now, we have to modify or qualify that statement by recognizing that this applies to the scriptures as originally given to the authors, as originally written down, not to copies and translations. And unfortunately, we do not have those original writings. They've gone, disappeared. No one has, as far as I'm aware, 
any part of an original. And you might say, well, wasn't God a bit careless in allowing those original writings to disappear? If they are so important, if they are the embodiment of truth, then why ever didn't he see and arrange for them to be preserved? Well, I think there's an answer to that. First of all, if you had something of that kind, it would easily become an idol, an object of worship, rather than worshipping God. But secondly, because scholars have considered it, and Christians generally have considered it so important to arrive at what the original authors actually said, they have studied copies, they have studied uh, copies, early copies, studied all possible sources uh, to try to zero in on the original manuscripts and what those original manuscripts must have said. And they've actually done a very good job of that. So that what we have in the Hebrew and Greek versions of the Bible, we have something that has to be very close to those originals. But you see, the intensive study that has been made has focused attention on Scripture, an attention it would not have received if we just had the originals and been able to store them away in, in, in some uh, safe place. The enormous amount of study over centuries, over millennia, that has gone into seeking out those originals has brought scriptures into focus, has focused a searchlight on them and demonstrated and spread their importance. So then, I will finish with this statement. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, I'm going to read what it says. Let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Psalm 51 and verse 4. Let God be true, and every man a liar. And it is our responsibility as Christians to uphold the truth of that claim that all scripture is breathed out by God. It is the truth. There are many people today who say there's no such thing as absolute truth. A postmodern movement you may have heard of who say, oh, truth is relative, truth is personal. What's true for me may not be true for you. But the Bible says, no, there is absolute truth and it is to be found in the Word of God, the Scriptures, which is why we stand here and preach them.